Welcome to season six of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. This is the season which includes special Australian and New Zealand guests from our Cosmic Shambles tour of Australia and New Zealand. Uh, if you would like to see reading lists of any of our guests or all of our guests, then just go to cosmicshambles.com slash book shambles and you can also there if you would like donate via patreon or if you just want to do a one-off donation by that other one let's name i've forgotten what's it called trent paypal that's the one paypal and uh this after this series as well or indeed during this series we will uh, be increasing the amount of specials for patreon only supporters so there are going to be coming up longer episodes with guests especially for patreon supporters we appreciate you a great deal and remember of course that all patreon supporters and indeed most paypal supporters there is the chance to win boxes of books every few weeks as i try and make some space in my house stop my family weeping too many books power tools scare the heck out of me especially the angle grinder i've got a big two and a half kilowatt angle grinder and when i was working in casualty i actually saw a case where the blade had split loose had just come asunder because an angle grinder will cut through anything it just grinds through anything and um the blade had broken into sectors and one of the sectors had just gone straight into the guy's leg no oh awful let's talk about non-gory stuff now let's let's talk about happy rabbits and bunnies and stuff dr joseph no you'll start with bunnies and then they bring the chainsaw out are we uh how do you want to have a look brilliant power tools i remember at school, like there were three options for design technology, and it was like sewing, cooking, or power tools. So, like everyone was chose power tools. And when oh. when men in particular are going through puberty, in no way are they erratic with extremely <laughs> dangerous uh, um, objects. So that's handy. Um, well, the advantage of sewing is that you're going back to our one of our first technologies, because for us to become intelligent, it was necessary for us to lose our body hair. Because there's only a certain amount of protein that you can eat. And if you put it into your internal body parts, like muscle and bone, you can recycle it. If you put it into hair, it's lost forever. So having the mutation that makes you lose body hair means that that protein is then available to to evolve a bigger brain. But you are then stuck with having to go out and kill a dinosaur and wear the fur or feathers of it. And so clothing had to be invented once we started getting a bigger brain. I think just before you continue, Josie, I think we've given now enough clues to the listeners who are going to know that before the introduction, undoubtedly we have Dr. Carl as a guest today. And uh, in terms of uh, information, I believe this is going to have one of the highest counts of uh, useful ideas uh, of Josie and Robin's book shambles. So this Ah, is Josie and Robin's book shambles. We have begun. We've had our pre-credit sequence there, like Morris Binder doing the pre-credit sequence of a James Bond film, Dr. Carr's pre-credit sewing sequence. Mm -hmm. And now Josie, continue. Well, the thing is, so so that means that dogs, for example, they're wasting loads of protein on their hair the whole time. Yes and no. They don't get skin cancer. Ah, so... And they have their own insulation and they don't have to go and adjust their clothing for day and night. So there's pros and cons. Yeah, well, as is everything in life. (laughs) It's a balance. Like the typical saying of an engineer is, you want three things, tell me which two you want. Can't give you all three at the same time. Mm. Well, that's that great line which uh, uh, about when... Charles Darwin looked at peacocks and said, you know, the sight of a peacock, the feathers in a peacock's tail make me sick because he felt that it was such an over, you know, all of that energy, all of that, that that it has gone into tail feathers and therefore reducing so much of the other potential to survive, uh, the, you know, the, the difficulty in running quite frequently, all of those things. He just thought, what a waste. And it actually made him feel physically sick. (laughs) Oh, so visceral. Wow, isn't that interesting that you can go from intellectual to visceral? Yeah. Ah. Well, he had that great mix, didn't he, which was that that ability. I I think that's part of the excitement about when there was a limitation of what you can do experimentally in the 19th Mm -hmm. century of sometimes just going, well, today's day I will just sit opposite the puff adder and see if I can ever control my reflexes every time the puff adder strikes, even though I know it's only going to hit the glass in front of me in the reptile cage. And so he spends a whole day just 
staring at a puff adder. So Charles Darwin did this? Yeah, he spent a whole day, I think it was longer than a day in London Zoo. I mean, he spent a lot of time in London Zoo, but one of his things, he thought, I wonder if you are able to, because you know the puff adder's going to strike, so eventually I won't just lurch backwards. And he oh. said, no, that, that, that is ingrained. I think that was for expression of emotion in man and animals. Oh, that's used as a, that, that concept is used as a diagnostic test in Parkinson's disease. What, to see if people still have their reflexes? Testing for a certain reflex like that is an early indicator, but a soft one, of Parkinson's disease. Yeah. So um, the area between your two eyebrows has a name. Uh, it's called the glabella. And if you tap on somebody's face, they will, with your finger, you do what's called a glabella tap, and they will automatically blink. And, but if you keep on doing it, they'll still keep on blinking unless they have Parkinson's disease. It's a soft sign. Wow, so after a while, though, if you have it, you'll just you'll be used to it or something? No, it's a, it's a way of diagnosing a disease. It, it, whether it has an evolutionary benefit or not is entirely sure. different because evolution doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be good enough. So medicine's full of these sort of weird diagnostic things. So, like, like in my, my surgical exam, yeah, like there's so when I was studying to be a doctor, you do surgery, and there's long and short surgery cases, and the long one you sit there for about an hour, two hours, three hours, and you go through the whole thing and you work out what they've got and how to fix it just by talking with them. The short one, the short cases, they're just all lying there on beds or in chairs. Here's Mr. Smith, he diagnosed him. So I shook hands with Mr. Smith, and I said, "What line of work are you in?" And he said, "Ah, oh, I'm a tradie, uh, chippy." Does that make sense to you, a chippy? It's an Australian yeah, term yeah, yeah. meaning a carpenter. You yeah. generate chips of wood. Yeah. And so I turned to the examiners and I said, I believe um, Mr. Smith has uh, cancer of the prostate. And they said, okay, now look at Mr. Brown. How do I do it? I shook hands with him, right? I shook hands with this person whom I never met and he had a really strong handshake. By the way, the only reason I'm mentioning it is it's probably one of the very few good diagnoses I ever made. <laughs> <laughs> and it was only an exam. But, so he had a really strong handshake. So what sort of person has a really strong handshake? Well, someone who works in with with the hands, someone who's creative, uh, a a building, yeah, someone who builds. Would you call them in the United Kingdom a white person van? Person, um, not necessarily a white, a white a van, van man. A white, yeah. white van man. But you call them a, a tradesperson, I guess. Tradesperson. Yeah, yeah. You've wasted all those that time in your life, tradee. Like, we Australians, we're so much more efficient. Just get rid of all the extra vowels and then just chuck on an IE at the end. Yeah, or chuck an L on. Yeah, no, yeah, some sort of vowel. So he had a really strong handshake. So I thought he was some sort of tradee. But his flesh was incredibly soft. Like, not just soft, but incredibly soft. What sort of tradee has very soft flesh? A masseur, because they're working with oil. Sure. And they've got strong hands. Mm -hmm. And a sheep shearer. Of course, because it's the oil in the, the lanolin. Sure. So I said, what line of work are you in, Mr. Smith? And he said, I'm a chippy. How does a chippy get soft hands? By taking feminizing hormones. Why is he taking feminizing hormones? Because he has cancer of the prostate. Next patient. Oh, my word. Now, this will be animated later on, and we will be giving you a mind palace, like in BBC's oh. Sherlock. I think that, that one definitely yeah. bang, had bang, mind bang, bang, palace bang. element. Well, this is what doctors have to do. You see, uh, I didn't realise it at the time, but what a doctor, a medical doctor needs is not intelligence. What you need is a fantastic memory and really good people skills. <laughs> and so somebody comes to you and you look at them and you ask them stuff, you see stuff and you ask them stuff and then you build up this grid and you go, bing, oh, you've got scarlet fever, it matches. Mm. And that's what you've got to have in your head. And the, per and the personal skills so you can work with them and get out of them something that they didn't even know was bothering them. Oh, so you're limping on your right foot? Well, I, I guess I am now. I, I didn't really notice. You know, so you, that's part of it. Yeah. So it's kind of building up to everything. If, if when someone walks in, the first thing is you think, right, what, is, what should this person be if everything is as it should be? Mm. What is the aberration within this particular model? Sure. You, you try to find the different pathologies. So, you know, you learn the funny walks. You know, this is a Parkinson's walk, a stroke walk. Um, you shake hands with people. and You've probably noticed this yourself. When you shake hands with somebody, sometimes their fingers are directly in line with the palm of their hand and sometimes they're bent down a little bit mm. every now yeah. and then. Yeah, early sign of a rheumatoid arthritis. 
See, that's it, it. It's too troubling to me that things that one might not notice would be diagnostic signs of quite serious. Well, things. getting back to the glabella tap and Charles Darwin, and um, so he, he could not um, get rid of that really useful uh, get away from this snake that's trying to bite at me reflex. Now, this interests me because when you have this level of knowledge, talking to, you know, Ben Goldacre, don't you, Dr. Ben Goldacre? Yeah, he, um, uh, he's a lovely guy, and um, I'm impressed by his mother, Anusha Fox, who had that wonderful song, Single Bed. Hang See, on, that's his an amazing was a thing. Pop star. Yeah, yeah. Now, his mother was a pop star. We've literally, I, I just missed, at 48, I'm just beyond the age that would have, have seen her. I, I think it was about 1974, because I didn't realize, and then everyone I knew who was three years older than me would go, don't you know who Ben Goldacre's mother was? And when obviously when she appeared on the pop programmes, oh, yeah. all of the children saw this, you know, kind of Egyptian goddess figure. Um, wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now you see, they see you can see it. If you look at the way he shakes hands, you'll notice he very I much has the handshake of someone who had to shake the hands of the Osmonds when they were backstage with their mum. Whoa, anyway, what does that mean? Uh, I'm trying to get a middle picture of this. You, you need to put the Mormon Tabernacle Choir in your head as well, and then uh, eventually the whole thing will, will work out. Uh, now, I, you write a lot of books. And I'm up to number 40 now. Yeah. You oh, have wow. an, Obviously, part of the thing is you... Because you, you, a memory isn't enough. I don't know, I've got a terrible memory. You, but you have your, your curiosity. Someone was telling me, for instance, when they were up at QED Con in Manchester... Uh, where you went? Oh yeah, like, did a gig you, there last year. Yeah, Lovely which I town. Missed. I was on tour with with. Yeah, with I, I, I knew there was great. some reason that the show failed because you weren't there in the audience. <laughs> I mean, people threw their underwear on the stage and they laughed and they cried, but it just didn't really take off without you in the audience. Yeah, I have noticed. Yeah, yeah. and I bet the underwear wasn't quite the same quality no, as the no, silky drawers really that I'm wearing now. Yeah. But uh, a friend of mine said that as you were walking out of the station, you saw a pattern. In, I think it was the pavement. I think it was the way that particular ah. pavement said. Now, this looking at the world and the distraction of of the world seems to be... When did you start to realise well, that you just mm. had a level of curiosity that would, would then drive on the rest of your life? It came to me at a birthday party when somebody gave me a book on astronomy and I thought, wow, the state of New South Wales is big, read, read. Australia's big. Oh, my God, there's these other countries in the world. There's other planets in our solar system. There's 200,000 million stars in our galaxy and now we know that there's 300,000 million planets in our galaxy and there's around 200,000 million galaxies. And as I went down that pathway, this sense of awe and wonder and curiosity just sort of enveloped me and I've never lost it. And what was that? You mentioned a book on astronomy. Just were, were there certain book. people that you would see if they had uh, a book out when you were a kid, you'd think, oh, I need that person's book because, you know, for a lot of people, I would say one of the things would be someone like uh, Patrick Moore in the UK mm. or, or Carl Sagan internationally. There was something about when they had a new book, you knew there would be something like Patrick Moore's a wonderful book called Can You Speak for Nushin? Oh. Uh, which was about various different eccentrics. Uh, I suppose one would probably call them pseudo-scientific eccentrics that he went and met and he sat down with someone and he went, so you can speak for Nushin. And this person then just starts going, but he, again, he had this this constant interest, not merely in the ideas around us, but the people that I think also generated those ideas. Sure. Uh, the unexplored life is not worth living. It came to me when, as, at the age of 19, I was working as a physicist in the steelworks at Wollongong. And um, I very slowly realised that there were some people who were alive and dynamic and lived each second. And there were some people who had had one year of their life and then they just repeated it. And now they were 40. They weren't 40 years old. They were still 20, but they just repeated the same year, 20 years old. And they were basically just sort of waiting to die. There were were people without a sense of curiosity, but it was good for them. That gave them a sense of solidity in their life and they were perfectly happy. And there's no moral value that one is better than the other, but I didn't want to go down that pathway. And I just love having this sense of curiosity and trying to just see the world surprise me. It's like... For free, it's like drugs for free. Mm. Um, hey, look, there's this pattern in the pavement. Oh my God, look at that pattern in the pavement! And how come in Manchester there are so many shops with gambling? Don't the people <laughs> know that gambling is a tax on the innumerate? There's a lot of um, 
Yeah, there's a lot of yeah. The direction you'd have gone in would have been because that's that kind of it's that strange thing, and I don't know why this is, but you know, near a station, I suppose one you have people who are stuck and they're waiting, Mm. and you have people who are drinking, so they may well be lowering uh, the ability to go. Do you know what? I think I'd lose all my money after the third pint. They think, hey, you never know. Was, do you know, Ben Goldacre was talking about gambling the other day and was saying that the odds of the lottery, it's still, when something's that life-changing, even though the odds are so infinitesimally small, infinitesimally small, it still feels like a He was saying it still feels like a gamble worth taking when it when the... Uh, if you were to win it, the prize is so great or something. Uh, sorry, I just it's just yeah, a funny connection. But, because but the word is feel. Yeah, in fact, exactly. your, your odds it's of winning weird. a lottery are only slightly improved if you actually buy a ticket. <laughs> you can just pretend you bought a ticket and get and the same feel. And still feel that feeling. But <laughs> still feel that lucky feeling. But wouldn't the, but the, you know, the real thing is how much money is life-changing? Because actually, probably, if you, say, get 10 million, it changes your life for the worse. Uh, whereas if you suddenly got, say, $100,000, mm-hmm. that may well be enough to just give you that little bit of extra security mm-hmm. that rather than changing your life, allows you to improve your life without turning... Because I think it's a bit like fame, that you, you see certain people who are now always going on about, oh, I don't like being famous, it's everything I always wanted to be, and now I am. And you go, that's because you imagined that if you became famous... That would solve all your problems, but ah. you didn't realise you'd still be you. <laughs> so you're still, you might have a limo now and you might have more people looking at you and adoring you, but that doesn't mean you've become someone else. In the ah. same way, if you give someone £10 million, you're just stuck with a whole new selection of problems. Yeah, I agree. Well, I also think people never think about the 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 downsides to things in advance so they don't factor that ah. in. So with being a comedian, like I was like, this is my dream, this is all I've ever wanted. And nobody said... Also, you need to run a small business that you are running and do loads of admin for that, which was definitely not part of the pre-factoring. Ah, well, let me discuss that issue of money from two points of view. Number one, in the year 2010, it took 385 billionaires to equal the wealth of the bottom half of the planet, three and a half billion people. Since 2010, it has dropped from 385 billionaires to 85 to 67 and last month, to eight. In just seven years? And you've possibly heard of the concept of trickle-down economy? Sure, mm-hmm. nonsense. They're lying. It's suck up. The poor are getting poorer, and they're working longer hours. And in America, the middle class have had their real wages go up since 1965 by 5%. Mm. But education... Oh, the toys have got cheaper, like cars mm. and TVs. But the important stuff like education medical care and housing has gone up by a lot more than 5%. So that's the um, first issue with regard to money. The second issue is that I was lucky enough to work as a medical doctor and I realised after a while that very few people sat on their deathbed uh, because I was with some people when they died. uh, I wish I'd worked an extra couple of shifts. And I realised that very few people ever in their life think about enough and have they got there. And I have now got to the stage where I have enough. I, uh, with my wife, we own our own house. We've got two cars. We bought another one the other day. The first one was $125. This one was $4,000. We got some bicycles. We actually have enough. And now I can concentrate on the important stuff. But I'm lucky because I live in a country where power grows not out of the barrel of a gun but out of politics. And we have a moderately just society, although for overseas visitors in Australia, you should know this. Uh, while the other states do come close over its two-century history, New South Wales is consistently the most corrupt and incompetent <laughs> state. And that's a record that we should be proud of. <laughs> but even so, we've got a pretty good justice system and things aren't too bad. So that's the my take on money as a life-changing event. It must be very strange being around people when they are on their deathbeds and saying kind of, yeah, saying their last words, seeing people. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really weird. I could always put a chill down my spine where I'd be seeing some patient walking around the hospital and then suddenly at somebody's bed, I'd see a whole bunch of people who looked similar and suddenly realised that all the relatives had turned up. 
and this is their final pathway. And so I was involved with one patient who was um, dying, and um, we made them comfortable uh, to the extent that the morphine dose went from five milligrams a day to 30,000. Wow. But they weren't in pain, which is good. Yeah. You've got to die. You've just got to have a good death. Uh, that's pretty sombre. I'm sorry yeah, to bring no, that no, no, I think it is sombre in I'm, some ways because having a good death is, you know, every, everyone seems to have someone in their family. It's certainly in the UK where they go, uh, and he went out and he watched a lovely afternoon game of cricket <laughs> and then he popped to the... And then he got in the chair, sat in his chair, and he died. And that's what you want. You want this idea of yeah, the pipe yeah. fell out of his mouth <laughs> onto <laughs> his lap and as we watched the trousers go up in flames, we realised <laughs> he's not there anymore because he's not reacting to the trousers in flame. <laughs> and those kind of moments are... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm very, when my mum died, it was uh, it was at home. So it was like at least... Oh, it was at died. Home. Yeah, and it was oh, at so home... And it was, and I, and I think, I found the strangest thing for me uh, that I didn't find it as strange as I should have done in one way, that she died in the room next door to the room where I was born. Oh, my God. And I kind of what thought... What a completing of the cycle yeah. that is. Wow. And, wow. And I think of all the people who've had, you know, people I know who have experienced, you know, terrible deaths of, of members of their family. And I think if there is a quiet one, if there is one which involves a fading out, or as you said, you know, suddenly the dose goes up and they're mm. comfortable, then you go, that's probably better than most people. Yeah, the, the, the trouble is with having a quick death, it then puts a responsibility on you that you have to live each moment as though it's your last mm. and you have to have left happy vibes around you so you haven't forgotten to tell Josie how much you really appreciate what she did and Robin, everything that, you know, you, you've got to keep your relationships up to date. You can't have too much unfinished business. <laughs> oh, no. Well, there's a nice one, D Doug Stanhope. I don't know if you know, he's an American no. comic and uh, he's written a book all about uh, his, his relationship with his mother and it starts off with her death. She yeah. had uh, cancer and one day she said, right, I'm coming around and she came from the, hosp from the, from the hospice and uh, she was going to die in uh, his uh, his house with with his partner, oh. and uh, and he said the rule is you're not allowed to uh, you know take the dose on Sunday or Monday because they're football days. Huh. And he said I was really specific about that. <laughs> I wasn't joking. They're football days. And then she had this moment where she she just went right. I, I want to do it now. And they started making... She normally had black Russians, but she decided she would have white Russians because she thought the milk would help with the medication in terms of lining the stomach. You're talking black Russian tea, white Russian tea? Oh, black <laughs> Russian... Yeah, <laughs> black Russian... What is a black Russian? It's a... It's, it's Coke one. and Kahlua. Coke oh, and Kahlua. It's not a tea, it's an alcoholic drink. Oh, alcoholic yeah, drink, yeah. So, so this was milk and Kahlua because she thought that would... And I was just thinking about that moment where preparing yourself... At one point, as she was glugging them back, yeah. uh, I think it was Doug, or it might be his partner, said a thing, where, where it went, oh, Mum, so that. And, and she went, she put on an English voice, and she went, sometimes there are times to behave like a lady, and sometimes there are times to behave like a pig. <laughs> and they thought, that is the best. And they went, and the lovely thing was, those were her final words. She continued, Aww. she faded up, but, but putting on this English voice. I mean, even like a pig, because I'm about to die, so let's have another white Russian. It's, uh, it's a very interesting book, because it is about that, that relationship with... Uh, well, we should talk about your book. Yes, we should. Uh, well, one of your books. We should choose one of the books. So let's... Can we do the Doctor Who book? Ah, yes. A beautiful picture of you, the TARDIS. Mm. Mm. Firstly, when did you become aware of just how... I mean, it's such an iconic... Uh, program and I think has had both for scientists and people in other that people really uh, it's been very inspirational to generations of children. Uh, I think I saw the first couple of episodes. When did it start? Sixty three, isn't it? I think. I wish I could say. I think we were wealthy enough to have TV in sixty three. I'm not sure, but I remember seeing it from the early days. You see, I was in love with science fiction. So from when I was about twelve to when I was about thirty two, on average, I would read one science fiction book. Per day, wow! By reading, luckily most science fiction books don't have a lot of character development, and so you can do the speed read thing, do a thousand words a minute, and get through it in about sixty minutes. Blimey. So it's not real deep reading. You were devouring. Them. I was I was after the concepts, the weird stuff, 
right? And so I had to stop when I was 32 because then I was studying medicine and the body of knowledge I had to absorb was so huge that I couldn't afford the whole hour a day. So I loved science fiction. And I thought it was fairly weak science fiction, but anything was better than nothing. Did you we, any, uh, sorry, go on. I'm going to ask the same yeah. question. Did you have any favourite authors? Um... I liked Peter DeVries, who wasn't science fiction because he made me laugh so much that I had to hold my nose to stop from going unconscious. A. <laughs> um, Van Vogt. Uh, I, w- I went through the Wollongong Library, would order in whatever I wanted. Oh, that's And nice. so I got really friendly with him because I started off on, when I was about seven or so, fairy tales of the world. And so there was a couple of hundred nations. And so they were starting off with Afghanistan and ending up with Zululand or something. And I was astonished by these similarities and differences, like common themes and yet different themes. Yeah. And so it was just a very small jump to jump onto science fiction. Like A. E. Van Vogt was good. I do like having a bit of superpower. Um, Arthur C. Clarke. So I'd go through every single individual author, everything they'd ever written, and they'd just be like oxygen. I'd just breathe them in and then breathe them back again. Gosh. Did you read any of Arthur C. Clarke's um, non-fiction as well? Because I mean, he wrote very interesting books, kind of predicting ideas of, of of the future as well. I probably would have, and would almost have thought this is not as interesting as science fiction. Mm-hmm. But it was amazing. He came up with the concept of the geostationary orbit, where the satellites take as long to go around the Earth, twenty-four hours, as the Earth takes to spin on its own axis, twenty-four hours. So it seems like the satellite is always above you and blow me down what a deep thinker he was because i find that's what i find those ones who were not merely playing around with what you can do fictionally when mm. you've been inspired but Arthur C. Clarke and I suppose in particular Isaac Asimov oh, I loved Isaac Asimov so, he puts your 40 books into oh, the shade no, I mean he, he he seems almost like L. Ron Hubbard not I don't mean philosophically in, or scientifically but in, in terms, terms of, of <laughs> give me the roll of paper and I'll just keep typing now doesn't he um, he has the world record for the most number of books written uh, was sexually impotent, had three wives who were very happy and refused to travel on aeroplanes because he was scared. Is that him? I think that would be it, yeah. yeah Why were his guy. wives happy? Sorry? <laughs> Why were his wives happy? They weren't bothered We at don't all. know. <laughs> well, Frank Zappa got it right when he said, your brain is your main sexual organ. He also sure. said very wisely, uh, so it's, it's not what you do with the fleshy bits, it's what the brain is thinking is going on. Sure. And so that leads to the whole concept of fetishism. So for some people, a fetish is another person's body, but it could be a shoe or a raincoat, etc., etc., etc. I came across this when one of my producers um, at ABC was uh, Master Tom the Bondage ma- Master in his other life, and suddenly I opened my eyes up to, oh, so that's what's going on. So you can have a top and a bottom and then a sub and then a dom. But then you can have a rebel sub. Oh, my God, what's going on there? Oh, so A rebel sub? Is that a thing? Yeah, I want you to beat me up and tie me up in this particular way. <laughs> Hang on, since when are you calling the shots? Oh, power bottom. Yeah, the power bottom. Uh, is, is that the other term? That's, it's just a term that a, a friend of mine taught me, which I... I just think the two words put together are very delightful. So Power Bottom and Rebel Sub, I don't know if they're the same or not. I'd have to go back to Master Tom and check. He's the expert on this. Because I saw I'm the sorry, word, I've was... derailed the conversation. You haven't at all. No, it's just I don't think people were expecting as much. You don't often see those two words together, Power Bottom. Exactly. That's why I think the combination is quite delightful. Yes. <laughs> um, so Isaac Asimov's son, Eric Asimov, is the wine expert for the New York Times. What? And he, yes, and he writes in the most warm um, unpretentious and uh, sh- what's the word? Generous way about wine. So that like, his whole thing is like, don't be frightened about wine, guys. We'll go together and drink it. So there you go. That's another it fact about the, the The difference in the generations, which is uh, in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, we were dreaming of going towards the stars, and now we're going finding. Let's just find better ways of getting inebriated because yeah. things haven't necessarily worked out. <laughs> yeah, guys, please, let's just have a glass of wine and stop fighting. Yeah. That's a, so that, yeah. I was going to say about the peccadillo thing. There was something mm. I think it was on ABC, but I'm not sure it was actually an Australian uh, documentary that I saw two nights ago, which is about a woman who married. A roller coaster called Bruce. You know about this? Oh yeah, I know about people who marry roller coasters, statues, that kind of thing. That, yeah. What kind of? You might know nothing. Tell me more of this thing. It's it's a specific type of fetish where you feel as if you are in a. Re- well, it's not a fetish, I don't think. You feel like you're in a relationship with an object. So there are an inanimate object. Yes. Mm. So there's a woman who married the Eiffel Tower, and there are people who, and to them, it is a real and loving relationship. 
Like they wholeheartedly believe that it's reciprocal and that this statue is in love with them and that they are having a meaningful relationship. The brain is your main sexual organ. He also said that um, politics, Frank Zappa, politics is the entertainment division of the military-industrial complex. (laughs) And he also said that his favourite vegetable was tobacco. He also said you can't have too much sex or vegetables. (laughs) (laughs) By which he meant sex and cigarettes. Um, What kind of music do you like? Are you a big fan of Frank Zappa? um, Yeah, because of his lyrics. I went to a couple of his concerts and found them hard to go by because he went down this jazz pathway. But then I went back to them and heard them again. So I basically try everything. I'm getting a good education from my daughter, working my way through uh, Bay Once, I believe her name is. Oh, Beyonce, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and all of the other ones. So she's take, taking me through and I'm going along for the ride and enjoying it. So it's like a whole new world to discover that you sure. don't focus them. Yeah. So what I'm just doing is finding what my daughters and son like mm-hmm. and I just follow them along and go for the ride. Oh, that's great. There are certain people, I was thinking when you mentioned Frank Zappa, certain icons of around that generation where you really think if they had lived to see the state of politics, I think you know, in particular American politics, but UK, but, but in when you think of Vonnegut, Mm. And you think of Zappa, well, he was already and you on think the of Hunter S. Thompson, ah. and you think of those three people, what would they have been creating now? Wow, well, it does seem like some of their wildish, wild ex- fantasies are coming true in a way. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Well, the, the, the pendulum swings in different ways. It'll be interesting to see where we go with this. The one that bothers me, to bring a heavy note to it, is the fact that climate change is real, we caused it, and... Stopping any progress on that front is a bad thing because if you include the positive feedback loops, we're looking at a five to eight metre ocean level rise by the end of this century. Um, Also, we've got the hidden killer of heat waves, which in 2003 in Europe killed 70,000 people. And And flooding and everything's starting to creep up. And the thing is that, uh, let me give you two words that you've probably never heard apart from, what was your favourite two words there? Power. (laughs) Power. I'll give you two words that you might not have heard together. Hidden externalities. Oh, gosh. So what that means is a cost or externality that is not carried by the person who causes it, the pollution. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in America, the figures coming out of Harvard via whichever school of medicine it was, was that as a direct result of the pollution put out by burning coal to make electricity, 26,000 Americans die every year. The hidden externality is that the families bear the cost and none of the coal-burning fire stations of incorporate any of the cost. In the case of global warming, the um, oil companies knew that it was real uh, by the late 80s, and then following the emails, um, they made the decision of, will we turn out, keep ourselves an energy company but go to something better, or will we try to cover it up? And they went down the pathway of trying to cover it up. Read the book by Naomi Oreskes, Merchants of Doubt. And um, our children will look back on us and say, why did you let yourself get filled? Because the costs are so much more than the profits that these uh, fossil fuel companies made. And everybody in the world is carrying these costs. Mm. It's a huge financial cost to have a port suddenly no longer be a port because the ocean level's gone up. The wealthy cities can afford, thanks to their larger tax base, seawalls. Smaller country towns on the ocean, forget it. That's why I was was talking to an architect who... uh he, he was saying one of the problems, he's gone into campaigning for climate change uh, and, and campaigning to, for great understanding, and, and he was showing me this map of just of the UK, and he said, uh, so that city will be fine, that city won't. He said that'll be exactly as you said, around the world, he said there will be those places that survive and there will be those that don't, and people still don't seem to realise. They have to do that- a measured retreat in Australia. In Cairns, they're building a new casino immediately at the waterline. And the emergency evacuation centre is actually already getting flooded when there's a, uh, a king tide. Um, some cities, like in the city of Townsville, in the area that'll be flooded, there's a couple of high points, but they're high points and not joined by a ridge to anything else. So the overall pattern is retreat. You can't hold the ocean back forever.
However, the good news in this three bits of good news, number one, we can reduce our carbon to virtually zero within 20 years if we decide to make a decision on it, a political decision. Number two, the kids are smarter by nine IQ points every wow, generation. Wow, is that true? It's in my latest book. <laughs> okay, it's called the Flynn Effect. We'll do a little diversion here. Um, as you know, Americans learn geography by invading another country. <laughs> and so they've invaded another country 40, uh, every 14 months in their 240-year history. Gosh. And um, beginning in 1932, the tens of millions of people brought into the American Armed Forces, Army, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard, Marines, blah, 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 National Guard, have all had an IQ test. Wow. And the IQ test keeps on showing the IQ going up, not just in America, but in every country around the world, by roughly nine IQ points every generation. So our kids are smarter than us. And they're all socialists now. So what does that say, ladies and gentlemen? Well, (laughs) in some parts of the world, they're not. Uh, And so uh, that's the second factor, that the kids are smarter. And the third factor is that we are living in the most peaceful time ever in the history of the human race. If you read the book by Steven Pinker called The Better Angels of Our Nature. The trouble with this book is that it has two to the tenth pages. A tough audience. Okay, 1,024 pages. Gosh. Gee, that joke didn't go over well. And, and if you'd have said two to the four, I'd have been like, right, cool, cool, cool work. 16 pages, yeah, yeah. And, and a small print. So if you look at the big wow. scale and the small scale, you see it happening. So in the year, on the big scale wars, um, in 742, um, and Lushan revolted against the Chinese emperor. To put down that revolution, the Chinese emperor killed one in every six people alive on earth. Oh, my word. Genghis Khan. One in every nine. I've got Genghis Khan DNA. Uh, he did that to build the world's largest land empire. He came across some of his DNA ended up in Poland, Ukraine, and Second World War. One in forty-four, and then so things are getting better on the big scale. On a small scale, look at murder rates, slavery, judicial torture, refugees. It's bumpy. Uh, 10 years ago, we had five civil wars. Now we've got 15. It's bumpy, but the overall trend is down. So I have a, I'm very confident that we'll get through this and we can, get, we can actually stop global warming going worse and we can even reverse it by bringing carbon dioxide out of that atmosphere. But we need the political decision. And how do you feel about, you know, when people talked about, say, for example, the election of Trump mm-hmm. and when people try and cast a positive spin on it, they're like... It's the final death throes of this, you know, this type of hegemony, this kind of old, like, old white guys who are are profiting from this particular type. Mm. And this is their final last gasp. Do you feel like that about it? Or do you feel like... It's going to take more than that. Like, what, what do you feel is going to happen politically? In the well, next? I'm quite confident that my ability to predict the future is zero. <laughs> Apart from the tides and eclipses, I can look up the books and I can get that 100% right. <laughs> but what's happening with human nature is ever so difficult. It could be that the pendulum will swing. It will not. The I remember being really scared, I'm old enough, when Reagan came in mm. and I said, he's rattling all of his sabres. And one of my very wise friends said, so long as all he does is rattle them. But then Reagan and Thatcher, to me, were so monstrously successful that I look at Britain and I'm like, oh, we had this chance 30 years ago to be Mm. something else and here we are this. The game... Okay, so what's going to happen is we're going to go backwards on climate change because he's in power for the next four years, unless he does a Mugabe and makes himself glorious elected president for life, father of state, beloved patron of everybody, (laughs) and then lives to 95. Or on a plus side, he does a Nixon... In the first term rather than the second term. He could. So, But he's got four years. So what's going to happen is that science is going to go backwards because science is like a baby. You can't just sort of abandon it for a while and expect that everything's the same. It's it's going to fall back enormously and climate science is going to get killed uh, enormously in America. Um, I have only one hope. Now, I'm going to ask you to make an estimate of a... I'm going to ask you a question without notice. I was asking people before the election, what do you think his chances are of getting elected? You know, 0 to 30, 30 to 60, 60 to 100. So here's a question. What do you think his chances are of having a nuclear first strike? 0 to 30, 30 to 60, 60 to 100. 0 to 30. And? I think 0 to 30. Okay. Not too bad. 
That's, that, that's the whole thing. Well, I can't I believe the future. I thought you were about to sort of tell us something well, of course, yeah. according to my research, and instead you're like, oh, well, don't according worry. According to my research, it's lucky we're underground. Oh, my <laughs> God, it's happening now. Look, I'm what? so glad, as, as someone who read Neville Shoot when I was younger, I, I know one. we're in the safest place. I mean, we're all going to die in the end. Yeah. But for the, Before, I've actually heard people apparently are moving, people uh Wealthy people from Europe, New Zealand. Uh, yeah, New, and New Zealand. Bunkers. And, and <gasps> people from Europe coming down, and, and America planning on moving to Australia because they kind of think, Oh well, it's better to be down here because of stuff that might happen. Oh There's my gosh! Significant movement of very wealthy people uh, buying land, setting up um, bunkers, and becoming survivalists, Ugh. and uh, picking a place that's not too far from an airport so they can fly in their private jet and they have a caretaker. I'd rather I'd rather um, die in the last throes of a beautiful cosmopolitan city than die in a bunker with. Tins of spaghetti. Oh, that's because you've seen Rogue One, isn't it? <laughs> uh, this is this is my joke about uh, Donald Trump, yeah. which is before Donald Trump got elected, I was speaking to one of my friends because I'm sort of a lefty, but my friend is a centrist. He's very mature, you know. He's got gets up very early, you know, very very <sighs> All those mature, boring, mature people things. <laughs> Absolutely. And I said to him, well, I'm really really worried that Donald Trump's going to get elected. And he said, Don't worry, I've looked at all the models and all the models forecast he's only going to get 35 percent of the vote. <laughs> and I said, But why are you trusting models? They're pretty, but they're not clever. They're just Pretty. Oh, that's deep, thank you, it? thank you. You're very deep. Well, well that is the when you were talking about uh, climate change, I would like to go back to that mm. because what in your research is it that means we seem to have a difficult? If if you are given uh, a single act of terrorism, mm. you are able to panic uh, a nation or indeed a world for a very long period of time. Sure. Mm. If you are given different images of which would truly decimate or beyond uh, the world, not namely the cost, the number of people who can die, as you said, in terms of heat waves in in in, in Europe and some of the things that we're seeing in the US as mm. well, and I know that in Australia as well, you know, the, the, we are are seeing the death of people, but because it seems the death of people by nature, even if it is nature that is no longer behaving in what the natural cycle might have been because of our contribution to it. Mm. Somehow we're able to just go, oh, no, 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 That's It's all fine. And oh. not be panicked by that. Ah, well, you said research. I don't do research. I have done tiny microscopic amounts of research in the past. Basically, I just read other people because I'm not very deep and occasionally I come across things I can pass off as my own and therefore appear profound, but I'm not. Nice. Uh, secondly, um, we humans, from an evolutionary point, are overwhelmingly wired up to concentrate on what is important. No, to concentrate on what is urgent not what is important. So if you have a kid fall down a well, you'll spend tens of millions of dollars to stop to, to get him out. But will you spend the same tens of millions of dollars to put fences around these unmarked wells? That's important. Won't do it. And, and it's, so we're, we're moving away. So the evolution is that 600,000 years ago, we had Homo heidelbergensis, a bit like us, a bit smaller, and we're pretty sure they had speech. Then 200,000 years, Homo sapiens, the population went up and dropped down to about 2,000, 70,000 years ago, nearly got wiped out by the explosion of Mount Toba in Indonesia, when in the middle of an ice age, it cooled the world down by a further couple of degrees. And by the way, Robin, every male on the planet comes from one of those 2,000, one of those 1,000 males in the 2,000-strong population that we had 70,000 years ago, whereas the women are more diversified. And it's not as though one guy said, look, all you other 999 guys, you go and build a fence. I'm going to go and check out these curvy female things. But rather, there were different lines of descent, and they all died out. And then we've expanded in numbers since then. And agriculture about... 12, 10,000 years ago. And so around that time, then language about 5,000 years ago and society and rule of law. So some of us, so, so different parts of our brains have gone along this evolutionary pathway. And I've always, ever since I was a kid, been more interested in important rather than urgent. I won't ignore urgent, but I won't let it stop important. So I got sunburned as a kid back then once. And then I got sunburned the second time, and I never got sunburned again. And so when I go to the beach, I'd lie down under a blanket. There was no such thing as having sunblock in those days or shade. And I even, as a 14-year-old kid walking into Wollongong, I would deliberately jump from shade spot to shade spot and try to walk in the shade. And my parents would do the same. And we were the only ones. Huh. But most people just go with what's urgent, not what's important. Yeah, that makes sense. 
what drives in terms of your creating books writing books what is it that draws you to a particular subject having done 40 of them now is it will you just you see a pattern you see something in the sky you read a medical story and you suddenly go i want to know about that and what's the best way of finding out about it i'll write a book about it Ah, well, what I do is I, I, I read my way through. I've, I've, firstly, I've got the benefit of 15 years of university education, none of which I had to pay for. Thank you very much, Taxpayer of Australia. I come from a time when we saw education as a worthy investment in the future generations rather than a way of making money from the citizens. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, I read my way through $10,000 worth of scientific literature, which is a pile a metre thick every month. So then I come up with interesting... I, I don't. I find them. And so there's a story that finally explains why when you're at a party and everybody's talking and suddenly the noise level goes up. And it turns out that as the alcohol level rises, <laughs> both men and women are made more deaf. Women, slightly more than de- men. And so if there's a party happening in the block next to you, you can hear when the alcohol level gets to about 0.03, 0.05 when suddenly it gets louder because they're all shouting, because their own perceived appreciation of how loud they're speaking drops, and they think, oh, I'm talking really quietly. So I'll talk more loudly to compensate, and then everybody is talking more loudly. So that's just one little tiny story. Well, that's nice, because that's one of those ones where the initial reaction, if you heard that, and I don't know if you think, the first thing you'd think is, is because our self-awareness goes down. Yes. And, and then it's like that, what's the, the thing involving the uh, asparagus, where the, the number of people who uh, asparagus makes their wee smell oh, different. Yeah. And then it turned out, no, it, it does it to everyone's wee, but it turns out whether you've got the correct uh, genetic sequence that means that you are able to sense that particular smell. Oh, is that the latest? Because I thought it was a two-by-two two grid where some people could make, could do the last form of transformation. That's what, in fact, I wrote about in that book down there, Brain Food. And some people could make the transformation to the smelly chemical and some people couldn't. And separately, some people could smell it and some people couldn't. Oh, well, you're, you're more up-to-date than me. No, that... that I, I only had the first part uh, right. of, the, of, of that story. Yeah, well, this book goes back. But it is amazing when you go to a wedding in a country area huh. um, when it's hot. And they serve asparagus in the first course. Ooh. And when you go to the men's toilets, the women's toilets, yee-haw, bring on the asparagus. <laughs> it's not wise. It's not wise. <laughs> yeah, but if you appreciate it from a scientific point of view, you could feel happy and not feel disgusted. <laughs> That's a good... I mean, does that, that is a great way, isn't it, surely, in terms of a coping mechanism of being human, is yes. to go, what a disgusting thing. Let me think about why it is disgusting. <laughs> Let me think how it may become less disgusting. And let's write another book on that. Yeah. So there's, there's other stories in there about um, how to work out pi, you know, the number pi with a shotgun. <laughs> and actually, it's really funny, in the abstract, in the intro to the article, they say, and I'm sure you haven't seen these two words together often in a mathematical paper, zombie apocalypse. <laughs> and they say, well, come to the zombie apocalypse, society will crumble, but we will still have to keep society going. So how will we know, for example, pi? Well, come the zombie apocalypse, a common tool will be a shotgun. And so they show how to use a shotgun to work out pi. And what you do is you draw a square, a target, a square, and then you draw a curved line from one corner of the square to the other diagonally opposite corner, you know, with a radius at the bottom. And so you've got a, a quarter circle inside um, a square, and then you fire a shotgun at it, and then the percentage of particles that land inside is pi on four. How? Come the zombie apocalypse, your shotgun will give you pi. Oh, thank God. Thank God. See, if you're getting worried. I did one, I did a meaning, in every book I try to put in a meaningful story about the heat waves. So, that, yeah, I'd always do one story on um, climate change. Should you refuel your car while the engine is running? Oh, cement shoes. They finally, after decades, found somebody washed up from the Manhattan River in cement shoes. <laughs> One person, after being a myth. See, part of the problem with the cement shoes is you've got to go to somebody, hey, you, stand in that bucket of cement for 12 hours. It's not as though you can harden them immediately. Okay. Whereas I think in Sonatine, there's, I don't know if you had Takeshi Katana, who's a great Japanese uh, director and writer, mm. their, their system, the gangster system, is to lower someone uh, on a crane into the water. Aww. And there's uh, a, a beautiful moment of argument. I mean, it's a very dark moment where they comes out and he's dead and, they, and they're just arguing, going, I told you, why didn't you? Oh, 
Now we're not going to get anything saw, out of him. Yeah, they're living in it for too long. Okay, and, and the word vomitorium. <clears throat> I used to think that it was related to the Romans going to room to vomit so they, they could then keep on, on eating. Not the case. That uh, term was evolved in the 1930s. Aldous uh, Huxley was part of the cabal at Broadding. But in fact, a vomitorium is a corridor. It's a way to disgorge a whole bunch of people quickly. And in the stage today, Life Theatre, they've got it right. So they'll say to somebody, OK, Josie, after you've finished your act, leave by the right, left, vom. <laughs> Meaning the right, right left, uh, oh, sorry, the right, the right rear, right rear vomitorium or exit. There's a lot of things like that which you perceive the origins of that phrase to be thousands of years old and then it's 1930 and it's the same with them it, it's it astonishes me how quickly things become knowledge to everyone like everyone would say oh that's from the roman era and it's ah. from when people had feasts and everyone sort of accepts that that is the truth of it even though it's only 80 years ago that the truth of it is and my friend was talking about how uh, it's a Tory thing in the UK of like you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and it's sort of used as this kind of ah. you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps but it comes from something around the same time like 80 years ago where pe- people who were countering the Tories were saying well, what do you expect us to do pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps that's impossible but now the phrase has become well of course that's what you need to do you know and, and it's such a small amount of time yeah. that that's that the meaning of it's completely changed but also becomes so firmly established and entrenched mm. that people just assume the opposite or assume the wrong thing and everyone the consensus is the wrong thing you know yeah. i find that very exciting and, but and also it, sad and it evolved into the word to boot up your computer ha really yeah no yeah bootstrap you, you in other words you've got a machine that's dead and you make it become alive how do you make a dead thing become alive you boot it up you bootstrap it up so it's a bit booty and the word selfie you know that i was the originator of the word selfie hang on he might be playing that. a trick on us tell please tell us the story behind that. around 2002 i think in september uh nathan hope um an australian hereafter because in australian known as hopey um, went onto the internet and said, I've got these stitches, they're itchy, what's going on? Uh, back and forth, back and forth. The stitches are inside his mouth. How do you get the stitches inside your mouth? And then at 3.03 in the afternoon on that day, he said, um, went to a mate's birthday 21st, comma, uh, got drunk, comma, fell over and put my bottom teeth through my bottom lip, and then oh. there's a picture. And then the phrase, sorry about the focus, comma, it was a selfie. And according to the OED... When in 2013 they made the word selfie word of the year, that was the first time anywhere in the history of the human race that the word was written down. Sure. And guess whose homepage it was on? <laughs> Mine. That's pretty fun. Yeah, so I was the handmaiden. I, I helped bring it into, I, I provide the background for Hopi to bring that word into the English language. So there we go. Now we know where the, the seed of the terminology of a new narcissism. <laughs> I wasn't expect- so we've, both, we've only got two minutes left. We've no, we talked about your book. Or about book. Other, no, that's cool. So the... Um, uh, well, actually, I wanted to ask... Is it right? You uh, were very interested... In, well, obviously, everyone was very interested in being an astronaut and, and is again now. There's a beautiful thing, I think. But you did some astronaut training as well. Uh, in the sense that I wrote a letter to NASA saying, I've got a degree in maths and physics. I've got a master's degree in engineering. Soon I will have degrees in medicine and surgery. Would you like how do I go about being an astronaut? And this was in 1980, and they sent me back a letter saying, sorry, we're full up, uh, and we only employ Americans. Um, I've still got that type of letter. Uh, bye-bye. And oh. so instead I went, I heard that Double J, as it was at the time, was doing a show about the year of transport in the space shuttle. So I went down there and said, do you want to hear about the space shuttle? And they brought me on, and that's how my media career began. <laughs> I, was booted, I, was, I was judged non-astronaut material, but instead only good for being a song and dance. Man. Then NASA's loss is everyone else's gain, isn't it? Well, I do love uh, NASA. I've been there for, you know, been there for space shuttle launches, and uh, it's a wonderful thing that we could actually get to them. And in one human lifetime, if you consider the thirty, the thirteenth um, of December, two thousand and seven. No, no, not in. When was the first flight? 13th of December, 1997? The, the Wright Brothers. Yeah, it yeah. would be. In less than one human lifetime, we went from not being able to fly to going to the moon and back. Mm. That was 69. In one human lifetime. My God, we humans are good. I, I read, um, who is it? Is it Julian Fellows? No, it can't. 
Gosh, Julian Fellows. I'm very frustrated by who it's. It's a very sweet, quite kind of. Um, uh, I can't. I can't think of the word. It's about. Um, I only got here the other yeah, day. Yeah, she only. She's, she's only been here for about twenty four hours, so yeah. it's a little bit jet lagged. It's about ballooning. Mm-hmm. It's. I read a really lovely book. Oh, about you're not thinking of Julian Fellows, Richard Holmes? No, it's not Richard Holmes. Richard Holmes wrote a bit. He's a wonderful. Oh, uh, forget Richard Beckinsale. R- R- Richard Holmes wrote. He wrote, he wrote a book Google all about it, that, which is because uh, Richard Holmes is the interesting journey where he used to be a writer of uh, um, biographies of romantic poets, mm-hmm. and then he's just started to right, go. The ah, wonder, the Roman, yeah, the Age of Wonder, Brilliant. which is a fantastic, but which is him going. Oh, there isn't this idea of this huge schism between a poet does this as they wander over the hills and a scientist sees this as they wander over the hills that very often the same romance is there ah. even if the expression is different and he's he's Age of Wonder is a, is a, a wonderful book oh. okay wait there it's Julian Barnes I'm thinking yes. of yeah that's very different to Julian Fellows <laughs> yeah it's but it's Julian Barnes but it's about ballooning um, mm-hmm. but I, it, the reason I was reminded of it was because how funny it's like Betamax or something it's yeah. people who are so close to what the thing eventually became but for whatever reason they were just not quite on the right tack but it was their whole lives ah. people who did hot air ballooning um, luck, anyway. luck plays a part so what happened they were trying to go down one pathway and they just missed the becoming famous and causing great advances well they were exactly they were just you know 50 years before doing something similar which obviously had the same intention and had the same kind of mm. dreams to it but they were using you know using Betamax and not well, the in, HS. In quiet times I reinvent my life and it begins with me uh, winning an Olympic gold medal um, by reinventing or inventing the Fosbury flop but instead you know for doing the high jump and calling it the Carl Crawl <laughs> and then with the advance of retrospective knowledge I win several Nobel Prizes as well as Ig Nobel Prizes, and become fabulously wealthy and uh, President of Australia. None of it happened. But I'd, I, I like to fantasise about how I missed making the right decision. <laughs> like, if only I'd bet 100 to 1 on Trump winning, and mm-hmm. yeah, all the way through, you know. How, are you comfortable with the uh, in the knowledge that perhaps there is another universe where this has happened to you? But also, of course, it's happened to me and it's happened to Josie as well. Or are you still a little bit uh, sceptical? I'll give you the 60-second summary. Uh, if you go into an atom, you end up at the bottom of the line with electrons, nothing smaller, and quarks, nothing smaller. There are three theories for things that are smaller than quarks They're, and, and electrons. They're either, I remember by S for sands, sud and string. Sand, there are tiny particles, not proven. Uh, suds, bubbling quantum stuff, not proven. Third, string. You know, the, the string theory, um, Brian Greene, not proven. Summary. If string theory turns out to be correct, comma, then there have to be multiverses. Well, and with that, Wait, the book is called Levels of Life by Julian Barnes, oh. and it's actually a very beautiful book about grief, but the oh. bit that's stuck with me is the air ballooning. Oh. <laughs> but it is a beautiful book about grief. I recommend it. Yeah, whereas the Ian McEwan book with air ballooning, that's not a very beautiful <laughs> bit at not all. Quite that's as a fun. horrible, enduring love bit. Um, anyway. Thank you very much. for. Uh, we're obviously going to see you. Uh, this will be in the past when people hear what I'm going to say, mm. but we will see you tonight at the Enmore Theatre uh, for the first Cosmic Shambles, which I'm yeah, excited where to be I'm, doing. Yeah, um, we're rocking in. Uh, by the way, I can give you... Um, the advice on how to avoid jet lag. Okay. I managed to get this on my BBC radio show, which I've been having for 15 years now, on 3 to 4 a.m., rather unpleasant time on Radio 5 Live on Thursdays. But we got some advice from some people in the Formula One business where you've got this team of about 100 people and you have to shift them across into different time zones and avoid jet lag and there's big money involved. So here's the rules. Number one, oh, you, the background is that you have not just uh, biorhythms in your brain, but in your muscles. Mm. For example, if you want to pump iron, uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon is the best time. With your adrenal glands, at 4 o'clock in the morning, they start ramping up the adrenaline for the terrible stress of waking up. Mm. And, there's always di- and, and your liver and your gut have got different biorhythms again. So here's the rules. Number one, minimum food while travelling. I did that. 
Number two, zero alcohol while travelling. I did not do that. <laughs> Number three, no blue screens because the blue screens muck up your melatonin production in your brain. I didn't do that. I, do you know I did a classic trip where I slept and didn't watch anything? Oh, mm. so uh, pleased with myself. Number four, a lay flat seat. Yes, I had that. It was incredible. The best thing that's ever happened. Number five, a hefty dose of melatonin about nine hours before sunrise in the place where you're going to be. How much is a hefty dose? Well, you know how people talk about two and three? Mm. 25. No. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, there is a disadvantage. So in my case, I left the ABC um, at the... Having finished my BBC show, I left it at two o'clock. At four o'clock on Thursday, I'm in the plane taking off. Friday, I do two gigs in London. Saturday, Sunday, I do two gigs and two gigs. Monday, I get on the plane, land on Wednesday morning, go straight to the ABC, perform, no jet lag. But the price is my brain. Number one, if in London or Manchester I just sort of stopped for a second, I would feel the ground slowly oh, moving. Oh, I know that feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Number two, I have a weird brain condition called, and if you're going to have a disease, always have one with a nice name, scintillating. My God, it's how good to have a disease with, <laughs> begins with scintillating. Scintillating scotomatous amygranous migraine. So scintillating means that in my field of view, and it happens over 20 minutes, there's a tiny flashing spot of light which then blocks a bit of my view and gets bigger and bigger. Yeah. Scintillating scotomatous means it's blocking part of my field of view. Amygranous means that I don't get any headache. Uh, migraine means that it's a migraine. So I, I have the migraine without the headache. Huh. And normally I get one of these every three months, two in one week. That was So I was pushing my... The brain doesn't like it, but I had no jet lag because I had to show respect to the audience by being unjet lagged and giving them the best yeah. of what I had. Like I've come across people who, to try to keep themselves awake when jet lag will start shouting on stage to sort of wake themselves up. You get, they're, they're sort of nodding off on stage performing. And I went up to a music festival and there was some very famous person from a very famous band who kept on saying, I'm jet lagged and was speaking rubbish. Uh, and it was obvious. That good if people, this is what I learned when I was a roadie for Bo Diddley. It's not show fun, it's show business. Sure, it's got to be fun, but you have a duty to give to the audience what they paid for. That's why I feel proud that we're not party comics. <laughs> oh. You know, if we were party comics, we'd all be, you know, snorting heroin and then going on stage and all that stuff. But no, instead, what we do is have a nice cup of mint tea, oh. keep the brain ready, you know, try oh. your hardest to perform That's well. A, the jet lag in performance century, because I, I think the only time that I've really noticed it was I was doing a gig in Sheffield and I shouldn't have taken it. It was like two days, uh, maybe, maybe like 36 hours after landing. And uh, I went on. And the first oh. five minutes, I was a bit... And then fortunately, someone said something in the audience, which meant that my brain couldn't just go, here's my routine. You know, the thing that if you... Sometimes oh. what you find is you can't create the... Re replicate a routine that you know. But if someone suddenly throws a curveball at you and your brain has to go, you need to react, and you haven't ever yeah. reacted to this oh. sentence before. This is and then urgent. I had a great gig, but for the first five minutes, I thought, oh, I can't get awake. I can't tell them that I also don't want to tell them that I'm not performing as I should do. And then this guy said something, and I thought, oh, there we go. Have you That's had a needed. similar thing, Josie? Well, uh, I tried to do, as an experiment, a show drunk, very drunk, at the ah. end of my tour, because I never, ever drink before. It's always good stage. to try an experiment. I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that so far. Yeah. <laughs> I never, ever drink before I go on stage, I, because I, I feel like it messes with my ability. high five on that one. <laughs> I never drink before a gig, so what I always do is they say, you want some wine? Yes, I get a glass. I say, can you fill it up? And I leave it there untouched. Yeah. And so that way they think they're not drinking. But I, I never drink before a gig. I've seen this happen. So what happened to you? Well, so I, I decided what I was going to do was do... A, I thought if I do a gig drunk, magical things will happen. Like strange associations will happen. It will be fun for the crowd. No, I was just too tired no, to perform properly. That's what I said to you about that thing. And it my doesn't... brain didn't give me anything special. Oh. My brain just sort of went... We're going to try our hardest to do this under the conditions that you've put us You under. foolish person. You, <laughs> you, you active, supposedly intelligent person running this body. Yes, you've done, you've done a bad thing to us. Yeah. We're going to try our hardest to complete the task, but unfortunately the task will be compromised. And basically wow. it was worth doing because 
I know it people is, that can yeah. only perform while drunk, and I know people that do perform while drunk and do magical things. But for me, I was just. I felt genuinely like I'd let the crowd down, yeah. like I'd let myself down. And the next day I felt masses of anxiety, like the type you get when you're hungover, but just ten times more. Well, it used to be bad like, enough if you if you woke up after being drunk and thought, what did I text someone? Not what did I say to an audience, stage. you know, for 90 minutes. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a, the, the drinking thing is quite... Because I, I, I always ban Brian Cox and on Infinite Monkey Cage, the Radio oh. 4 show we do. Um, sometimes I go, let's have a glass of wine when there's some physicists on. I go, no. No, you're not allowed to because it's over an hour before the show, so it'll have really started slowing you down. And you, when we then get to the explanations under the heat of the lights, yep. your equations will be wonky. Oh, I yeah. just got sleepy. I spent half the gig lying on my back on the stage saying, Don't worry, guys, this is for charity. So oh, it's fine. God. <laughs> I mean, oh. it was for charity. So it's like an Andy Warhol <laughs> event, wasn't it? Mm. What do you want to do, Andy? We better, we better round up. Oh. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, and uh, hopefully, we're going to see you also doing something in the UK. I hope you're going to be able to come over and do one of our Christmas shows. I would love to have an invitation. Is, uh, What's good is we know that you're not you going to be jet lagged on stage. We know that you're going to take it seriously. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I'm a professional. So with that, we've got to go. So I won't tell you my alcohol story. Thank you very much to all our Patreon supporters, some of whom are Emma Clayton, Gemma Scott, Mark Seymour, Ben Matthews, Liz Fox, Lisa Walton, John Crobane, Tim Mouncer, Andrew Lee, Alice Turner, and today's winner of a box of books is Edwina Chan. Thank you, Robin, and thank you to all our Patreons, and thank you for listening. Edwina Chan, the winner of the box of books this week. If you get in contact with us at contact at cosmicshambles.com, just pop us an email saying, hi, it's me, and give us your address and everything, and we will get your prize out to you. And as always, all the old Book Shambles episodes are available to listen for free from cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles. And you can also become a patron if you if you so choose there. We would greatly appreciate it. It helps us to keep making the show. And also have a look around the rest of the Cosmic Shambles Network website at cosmicshambles.com. There's lots of stuff from our tour around Australia with Robin and Josie and Dr. Carl and Matt Parker and Helen Chersky and Lucy Green and lots of other people. And obviously there's lots of other documentaries and podcasts and web series and blogs and articles and events and all sorts of stuff on there. So do check that out. And we will be back next week with another new episode of Book Shambles. Thanks very much. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.